0: You're listening to Productive Flourishing. Thanks for joining us today. There are plenty of loud people in
1: business, in marketing, in creativity, in health, and spirituality, and politics who are getting lots of attention because they're loud and persistent. And sometimes their messaging is counterproductive. And if you don't, stand up for your message, it doesn't mean you have to tear those people down, but if you're not standing up for your message, then other people are only hearing those counterproductive messages. That's in part why I just, (laughs) I get pretty roused uh, to get other people to stand up for their messages that can really contribute value and contribute to the greater good.
0: That was Jeffrey Davis, the founder of Tracking Wonder, A consultancy that mentors entrepreneurs, creatives, and brands to have influence with integrity. He joins me for the third time on the podcast to discuss why it's so hard for leaders to stand for something even after they figured out what they stand for. Hint, it's not merely the fear of failure or being wrong. I'm Charlie Gilkey, and this is Productive Flourishing. Welcome to Productive Flourishing, where we explore how to do the work that matters so you become your best self in the world. I'm your host, Charlie Gilkey, and I'm joined by Angela Wheeler and other guests who will share their stories, insights, wins, and challenges in the hopes that our journeys and stories will help you with yours. Now, on to the show. Jeffrey, it's always a great pleasure of mine to talk to you. Our our conversations um, tend to go and a lot of different places, um, and, and still walk the line of writing and getting your message out and standing in integrity, um, which is, you know, three things that I love. So thanks so much for joining me for the third time on the podcast.
1: Charlie, it's always, uh, first of all, a delight just to hang out and, and rap with you. And second, it's a, it's a big honor to be on your show.
0: What I'm excited about with this particular conversation is we actually get to extend the conversation we had in episode 64. So way back in January, 2016, we were, um, we were using the idea of themes and values and, and crystallizing what we stood for as a way to shape our year at that time. Right. It's way back in 2016. Feels like forever ago. Right. Um, and you know, as we were discussing what we wanted to discuss today, um, what came up is why people fear standing out and standing up and, and standing with. Um, and so it's a great follow-up because there we were on that episode saying, you know, here's how to figure out what your message is. without necess- and, and the roadblocks to coming up with that message. But not, oh, and by the way, when you do that, there's this new struggle. There's this new journey that comes out. Um, and so, and and you've been doing a lot of talking with writers and leaders and your creative folks around sort of these topics. And so I'll let you pick up the ball from here. What are some of the common fears people have about standing out with their message?
1: Yeah. Uh, I think that's a great launching pattern, the fears, because they're almost not even recognizable to us. Like so much of our fears are semi-unconscious or completely unconscious. Um, One fear uh, that I've seen among a lot of people in the Tracking Wonder community is if I stand out with my message, whether it's from my personal brand or my business brand, I'm going to be attacked. There will be some pushback. There will be some naysayers. There will be some trolls. I'll lose clients. I'll lose customers. It's a related one, right? From the pushback, I will lose clients and customers. Um, A second one, it's a bit more subtle, has to do with a sort of, oh my gosh. So it may not be a controversial point of view or stance. It's just a stance. It's a point of view you're taking within your field and saying, this is what I or this is what our business is, what our brand is about. We're not about these other things that exist within our field. And I'm not about all these other 10 million things. I'm about this. So that more subtle fear is like, oh my gosh, I'm saying it out loud, and now I'm really going to have to deliver on it. (laughs) So uh, they're two related, but actually two distinct set of fears.
0: Yeah, it's interesting when we talk about the first one, because especially for not a lot of new communicators and communication leaders, right? Um, The idea is once you say this is what I stand for, that you throw up like a beacon for all the trolls and the haters in the world, and they're all going to find you right then, right? They've been hiding out. (laughs) But when you say this is what I stand for, that's when they're going to come out, right? And it's a sort of weird thing where, you know, I think I talked to Jeff Goins about this as well, right? Anytime you have the belief that when I do X everybody or all of them, or there's this big horde of critics and naysayers are all of a sudden going to pop up. Mm -hmm. Um, That's a really um, false belief most of the time. Like most of us are not going to get to the degree of fame that, (laughs) (laughs) that all of the trolls and all of the people will start latching on to us. We might alienate a few of the people in our audience, but all of them out there, they're busy attacking somebody else right now. They, they've got a full-time job hating on other people, right? And so when you get to the point where you actually get their attention, that's partially how you know you've made it, right? Because you're worth the time for, for some of them to redirect their attention. It's really
1: profoundly true at every level, wh- whether I'm working with um, uh, somebody writing a book, uh, about to author a book, and is afraid that typically the fear in those cases are, I'm afraid what my colleagues will say. It's not I'm not not I'm afraid what my actual readers are I'm going to serve, but what my colleagues will say. And most of the time the colleagues are championing them or not even paying that much attention as much as we think they are. Um, when it comes to social media or publishing your content online, overwhelmingly that fear of troll, troll attraction is completely unfounded. And if it does happen, if you're really taking a clear, consistent point of view, I mean, one thing you consider is, well, how are you presenting that point of view? Is it in conversation or as a bullet toward some opposition? And if you so happen to attract some naysayers, which I have recently, they're not even trolls. I would just say, like, some people have been pushing back on certain messaging of mine. Then you can see that as an opportunity for conversation. As opposed to battle. So yeah, I'm right there with you that uh, most of that fear in the former category is unfounded. And even if it does happen, if you do attract opposition or opposing views, I would say see that as an opportunity. See that as an opportunity for conversation
0: and for you to check some of your own ideas. Absolutely. And what I wanted to distinguish between is between people who come and say, I don't get it. I don't understand it. I don't think that's right, right? Or I see things differently, mm-hmm. right? Those sort of people versus those people that come to you and like, you're an idiot. I can't mm-hmm. believe you would ever think this and so on and so forth. Now, that latter group are there's the trolls and the haters, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's very unlikely for the people who want to show up on the internet and prove mm-hmm. other people wrong. There's nothing you can do actually do to prove them wrong. Right. They have been, right. They're have, they going to last longer, and that's going to be their particular jam. So don't play that game. Yeah. But can the former group, I don't understand. I'm not sure about this. I've got a different perspective. What about this? Did you read that? Um, those can be your allies, right, if you engage with them in a certain way. And that's where I think, um, one – And this is something I've had to practice too, Jeffrey, right, is no matter how we come across, um, especially when we're advancing a new idea, our confidence is pretty fragile, right? And so our first sort of round of defenses is to either protect it and not put it out there. So that's sort of one of the reasons we don't stand out. But the second is as soon as we put it out there to like dig in and ignore anyone in this first group. And the challenge that we have, and we actually talked about this in the, our first episode about how not to be an idea thief, right? So right. So um, sort of the first thing to do is recognize that you can engage with that. And, and what are the skills? Um, and what I would say is for those people that are showing up consistently in conversation with you, even if they have an opposing but reasonable position um, – Get offline as much as possible with them. Like, don't do the web fighting thing. Get on a Skype call with them, right? Get on the phone. Say, hey, can we meet for coffee about this? Because I'm really interested in this conversation. And what you might find is that other person starts to treat you like a human, and you start to treat them like a human. And you might realize that there's some position in the middle that you can't find with um, the lack of discourse that we have online. Right? That's
1: right. I mean, absolutely too. And and just to clarify to your audience as well, when we're talking about you know owning your message or taking assuming a point of view, taking a stance, we're not necessarily talking about politically or socially loaded messages. For instance, just the idea of taking a stance and owning it is itself controversial to some people, as we're unpacking it today. So um, I ran a Facebook Live on just this very topic, take a stance. And a uh, very engaged community and, and somebody, somebody on the uh, feed said, um, well, this all sounds good in theory, but some people in a corporate setting may actually fear losing their job if they take a stance, if they mm-hmm. voice their point of view, which was one of those great opportunities to say, you know, you're right. There is a whole other layer of fear, a whole different situation and context. And could we have, we tried to have some conversation there on Facebook, but that's the type of conversation you do want to take offline with that person, but also offline with yourself and say, that person's right. You know, taking a stance for a creative entrepreneur, um, somebody who heads up uh, her own business is different than for somebody who works for a company who is following the leader's messaging and so forth. So that's a great opportunity for me to go offline with that message and say, how do I empower the intrapreneurs and the people working within those organizations to own their ideas within the organization? A whole different ballgame, but a great opening that happened through opposing them.
0: Absolutely, and I'm glad you pulled that out because um... – as you develop your body of work more and more, you will develop those, you know, things in which you're an outlier on. For instance, um, I, I can give a few, I, I um, you know, a lot of people love the Pomodoro technique, Jeffrey, I think we've talked about this, where you take 30 minutes and 25 minutes of those you work and then five minutes, you know, you take off and do something. I think the Pomodoro technique is terrible for a lot of creative work, Right. Um, it just doesn't work. It works great for admin work. It works great for, you know, certain types of time. But that particular piece is something that I want more creative people to question um, because I found time and time again, you just can't get the run up. You know, you can't get the engagement threshold is what I call it in that 30 minute time, in the 30 minute um, pack of time. Now, you might think, OK, who cares about that? Um, there are plenty of people who will argue to the teeth with me about about this particular issue. Or um, the, uh, another stance that I've, that I've taken is that we don't actually have time management problems. We have priority management problems. Okay? Um, mm-hmm. And people are like, well, that's, that, that's great if you're one of these creative entrepreneurs or your leader, but what happens if you're you know, just in a corporate environment and you just got to do what your boss tells you to do and things like that? Well, that's a conversation to be had. Um, and usually what I'll say is underneath that is the priority about what type of job you're going mm-hmm. to do and what how you're going to advance your career, but still it's a priority management. But the point is, um, you know, I wanted to go to sort of productivity topics really quickly. Mm-hmm. Because those aren't really politically loaded ones. Those mm-hmm. aren't socially loaded ones. And most of the time, stuff people don't actually care a lot about until mm-hmm. you do the work and you see what works and what doesn't work. And so um, the more, here here's what I would go as far as to say. If at a certain point in your development, you're not finding those places that are um, controversial in the sense where different experts disagree on that, then um, it's probably time to go back to your work and do some more deep work and deep exploration. Um, Because if it's largely, I agree with everybody and everybody agrees with me, um, you're not going to stand out and, you know, it's unlikely that people that have the problem that's associated with something that you can't that you can't see, they're not going to hire you. They're not going to buy from you. You're they're not going to resonate with them. So yeah. it's almost one of those things you have to find that place of controversy or disagreement or conceptual conflict for you to have something that makes the borders of your body of work. Does that make sense, Jeffrey?
1: It makes complete sense. I have like ten dots I want to connect, but I'll only connect three, maybe four, because it's so spot on, because um, at the heart of what you're saying is opposition, right, so opposing ideas create a new idea. If you're just perpetuating the same ideas that are out there, not only are you not standing out, you're not really contributing to your field with new ideas, fresh ideas. Opposition is at the heart of story right? We have no real story without conflict. We have crickets without conflict in a story. Uh, We have people sort of strolling through the park and having a nice sunny day, which is great when you're tracking wonder and other things, but it doesn't really create um, the sort of tension that helps you stand out and contribute fresh ideas to your field. So this ties right back to the first question about fears. People fear disagreement. People fear rocking the boat. People fear confrontation. We all have our own story around that. I certainly have my own trajectory of avoiding confrontation of any kind throughout my twenties. And yes, I did write fictional short stories without any conflict and they were very boring. And so, <laughs> so, um, so you're right on with something here. In fact, um, we were jamming on this um, in a in another recent um, uh, Facebook Live where I was suggesting that that um, one way to really mine surprising big ideas is to um, mine your irritations,
0: mm-hmm.
1: right? Really, really mine your irritations and leverage those irritations. So, if you've got an idea, you think about well, what's its opposite idea? Right. If if POMODORA is great, then what makes POMODORA not so great? What makes POMODORA bad in some situations, some circumstances? So, um, so you start there. You say, well, what idea out in the world really irritates you? And somebody in this jam recently uh, is is really wonderful at marketing, and she said, you know, the idea that really irritates me is that marketing is evil. That marketing is manipulative. And I said, "Okay, well, what's what's the oppositional idea? What's the idea you want to contribute that's oppositional that you want to be known for and develop your own thought leadership? And she said marketing is a form of service. Now, if she comes right out and says that, you know, marketing is a form of service, that all sounds nice and benign and benevolent. But it's not near as interesting until she positions it against marketing as manipulative. Suddenly, marketing as a form of service is far more captivating against marketing is manipulative. So I think you're, you're right on there that you do have to do some deep work to say, well, first of all, how do my ideas oppose existing ideas? And what existing ideas really irritate me that I want to stand against? Because owning your message is not just what you stand for. It is actually literally what you stand against as well. And that should not frighten you. The more you stand up and realize you don't perish, that you become a model for others, the more you realize, okay, great, I'm actually contributing to the greater good <laughs> by, by st- standing up for, for these principled ideas.
0: I think there's another benefit in just understanding that in the greater arc of the cultural conversations we've been having since… I don't know, 4000, 6000 BC, like it's really hard to come up with some original idea where you like you're the first person that has believed that. Right now, I think there are some beliefs that are counter to science right now, like if you're a flat earther at this point, you know, that might be a position not worth taking. (laughs) <laughs> for a lot of different reasons, right? Unless you have a very limited audience. <laughs> Unless you have a very limited audience. Um, but outside of that, there is so much room for a myriad of perspectives, and and you know whether you know to go philosophical: is change constant, or is everything just sort of stack, you know, static and frozen? Like what what's real, what's not real? What's the basis of what's the basis of society, and and good and ethics, and all those types of things, right? Those questions, like. You can't be the first person to have a position in any of those. And the reason I say that is I think another reason people are afraid of standing out is that they don't want to be that outlier that can be ostracized. They don't want to be shunned. They don't want to be that weirdo that gets pushed out of the tribe. Right. But in this greater global conversation that we're having, you're not the weirdo. Right. Yeah. It's impossible. Someone weirder has taken that position, right? Someone weirder yet will take that position in the future, right? Yeah. And that's the beauty is like you have something to say. Right. And it's the question is not necessarily whether it's confrontational or whether it's complimentary, but like what is it that you have to say? And and the last thing they'll say on this is, and this is something I know we, we you and I both talked about. One of the reasons that it's hard for people To come up with that stance is because they're not um, reading, talking, and conversing enough with people in a small enough area of domain so that they can try an idea out and get lit up by it, get frustrated by it, be changed by it, um, to try someone else's idea out, out and on for a while. If you're just stuck in your own ideas all the time... It's very hard to stand for something, even your own ideas, because you don't know where you don't have those fences to put the structure around your ideas and your body of work.
1: Completely. What what are you pushing your own ideas against? So, you know, I um, work with clients in their 30s, very accomplished in their field, work with people in their 50s, 60s, very accomplished in their fields, and they often have the same sort of uh, silo dilemma. So, one in his 30s, very accomplished in his field, has has some great ideas to distinguish himself. And uh, one of my first assignments to him, once we unpacked a few potentially big ideas, was I gave him some reading and said, great, read what so-and-so has to say about this related idea. Read what so-and-so has to say about this related idea. Like Distill down what those existing leaders in that field have to say about that and then see where you're adding your verse to the conversation now that is a profoundly humbling experience but it also can be an incredibly inspiring experience of course it's humbling because you say oh my gosh everybody's already covered this territory they've been covering it for 10 years before me what do i have to offer well that's a great question what do I have to offer? There's the opportunity. It's like, yes, how can I add my verse? I have a unique point of view. I have a unique 10, 20 years of experience and training in other areas, and I just have a unique way of adding my spin. So you add your verse to the existing conversation. You don't invent a brand new conversation. Last thing I would offer is, yes, mind your irritations. Mind your irritations for big ideas. The second is one plus one equals three, which is similar to what you're saying. Like we take an example like, um, you know, for instance, Daniel Goldman did not invent emotional intelligence. He, was a, he is a brilliant researcher and distiller of others' ideas and then adds his own verse and immediate application of those ideas. Similarly, Tara Brock didn't invent Buddhism, or compassion, <laughs> or or uh, um, self-forgiveness after trauma. But she did combine those existing ideas with her unique spin to develop a whole thought leadership platform of radical acceptance. You know, that's what I would encourage everybody listening in to do is like, okay, see where I want to add my verse to the conversation, start testing out some ideas, see what gets traction. And that's you know, that's how you start, start to stand out by trial and error and experimentation.
0: So what's interesting here is, you know, your thought about Buddhism got me interested is, is most of the founders of the major world religions did not think they were founding a major world religion. That's right. Right. They were taking what was in, in the air and critiquing and flipping tables and, you know, um, getting out of palace walls or, um, you know, if you believe the myth about Lao Tzu, like getting stopped on the way out of the gate and saying, hey, you got to write this down. Right. And he's like, I'm, I'm just going to write down what I'm going to write. And so they, you know, founders of these major monuments of, of you know, our, our human civilization didn't necessarily sit out and say, I'm founding a new religion. Right. Right. Um, <laughs>
1: I love that. Could I could I riff with you Please on say, that? Please yeah. do. Because exactly, Siddhartha is a great example uh, for much of what we're talking about, for what is happening right now in 2017 with all of your listeners as potentially, as people with influential ideas. Siddhartha, I mean, Buddhism is a critique of uh, Vedanta and several lineages of, of yoga, but he tested all those out, right? He was like, "Ah, oh, this doesn't quite work. This isn't quite complete. This isn't quite complete. So it is a verse to that ongoing conversation of questions like, how do we live our lives fully and to our full potential? But Siddhartha was also in conversation with those people with different points of view. That is how those traditions have continued to emerge and evolve, is they're talking with each other out of silo. Back to your point about that. And that is, you know, this is why... We must you know go to conferences. we you and I must have these conversations. <laughs> um, um we should start disagreeing in a moment, just to model. But this is you know this is this is how ideas do evolve and happen um, is through this conversation, opposition, and and so forth. So, yeah, I love that you. Yeah, I I just love this is another reason I love talking to you. You're like oh let's go back five thousand years. Okay.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean it's it's really and thank you for that. It's really so Buddhism is a critique of um you know different layers of Hinduism at the time, right? Zen Buddhism is a synthesis of Buddhism and Taoism, right? Once it hits you know China and Asia, and they're like wait a second, we've got this and you've got this, and one might argue. That newer forms of minimalism is actually yet another layer on top of some of these things like this, right? Where people are looking at, like, wait, wait a second, these these guys had something going on, and then we have sort of the current resurgence of stoicism right now, which comes up every once in a while, right? Every every eighty to one hundred ten years, we get we fall in love with the Zo- with the stoics again, right? We're just in that period of time, right? And so these ideas keep coming back and conversing and 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 changing and morphing, and those are what make these types of things, living traditions. Um, And I think when we see that maybe we are joining a living tradition, and we're showing up in that way, and that we don't get the final verse, we just get the current verse, right? And we're doing the best our ability to add to it, change to it, modify it, so on and so forth, I think it can take some of the pressure down. Because I think the other reason that people are afraid of standing out is, what if I'm wrong? Mm-hmm. What if I spend five years writing about something and I realize I'm wrong in two ways? What I thought was true was not true that's that's one way you could be wrong. The mm-hmm. other way is what I thought mattered most to me changed mm-hmm. it you know i now I'm interested in something different, mm-hmm. right, and I've built this entire brand on you know. Um, the the lineage of Ewoks on Tatooine. And I'm no longer really interested in the lineage of Ewoks on Tatooine. I want to talk about this other thing, right? I want to talk about Lord of the Rings now. It's really mixed metaphors, right? Um, and that's where people get stuck. Because like, I don't, especially hyper-creative, creative giants and polymaths and renaissance souls, it's like, we want to talk about everything and never limit that there's something that might not be a part of this conversation. As opposed to thinking it as like, a verse, or a chapter, or a book. You write it, you explore it, you mine it, you learn a bunch of things, and then you move the hell on to what else is new for you. What else is... And I think that... when So you have sort of two options here. You can take a stand, realize that you're right, and explore it to its its logical conclusion, and then move to the next thing. And that's a great sort of career arc. You also have the other brilliant one, which you stake a claim, you explore and you research and you realize you were wrong. And then you get the next layer of sort of unraveling how you were wrong and how you got there and how you uncovered. That's a brilliant trajectory too. Mm-hmm. The only trajectory that's not worth having is doing nothing. Cause you don't learn, you don't evolve, you don't have a career like nothing. Um, there, there are a few places, few, few places, maybe the government where like nothing is actually a career. That's supposed to be a joke guys. But anyways, um, <laughs> But for the rest of us out there as as conversation leaders, thought leaders, writers, thinkers, renaissance souls, makers, change makers, whatever you want to call yourself, our job is to add to the verse, which means we have to use our voice.
1: Yeah, yeah. So, you know, and I would say there's another path that isn't worth taking. In addition to not doing anything, do only what you already know is going to happen. Perpetuate what you already know. That's, to me, a path not worth following. So, um so, yes, so the permission to be wrong is essential. Give yourself permission to be wrong. Give yourself permission to be wrong in public. Give yourself permission to be wrong in conversation with your community. Um, this was <laughs> kind of a rule of thumb that uh, uh, that I tried to establish with my wife, Hillary years ago, I like, look, I would like to be able to voice some things out loud and be wrong. <laughs> like, just let me be wrong sometimes. Uh, so do that with your readers as well. Test out these ideas. Um, the second thing, though, uh, kind of kind of in relation to what you're saying, Charlie, is, you know, being polymass and multi creative, multi talented and multi curious I would say for those of you out there who you have so many ideas and you want to share this, you want to share that, you want to share that, give yourself a little voluntary self-challenge to distill the 30 ideas you want to share in the next year down to five. I was just having this conversation uh, with a consultant and she said, okay, so maybe I'm not focused on a single message right now, but at least I'm focused on five instead of 50. So that's a profound act of self-discipline and self-constraint where creativity really thrives with that type of voluntary enjoyable challenge. I mean, that's in part the definition of flow is like having some voluntary challenge. Um, When you do that, when you start to narrow what you're going to write about, what you're going to talk about, what you're going to be about in your brand or business, then you're forced to go beyond just your initial opinion. You're forced to do some research. You're forced to to unpack that idea. And over time, over several months, a year, three years, you do become known for that. Charlie Gilkey's become known for advanced ideas of productivity and, and finishing what you start, in part because Charlie Gilkey has stayed with those ideas for several years and has unpacked them in all kinds of nuanced ways and has named like Charlie I you know what I love about you is, is like you name things too like you oh, I'm gonna name this turn on you know existing ideas and create my three like I'm gonna create my new framework and that's what you become known for Um, but Charlie Gilkey is allowed to like explore other topics too, that are, that are fresh of mind, but you have those anchor themes that we know you for, and that's really where you have developed your thought leadership. And I think that that is true for other people as well, that, you know, what I want to circle back around to one other fear is that people don't want to stand for a message because then they think, oh, that's, that's all like, I'm just going to lock myself in a box well, no, I don't think so. I don't think any major thought leader you see or conversation leader whom you admire locks him or herself up in an idea box and just becomes known for only that one thing or makes money for just that one thing. But that one thing does attract people. So, just wanted to offer that volley.
0: I I appreciate that. And I appreciate the feedback too, and you know. Th- I think I was telling you this, Jeffrey, um, back in May, like around May 20th, um, PF turned 10 years old. And I didn't think that was going to be a big deal, but it's actually, it's been a bigger deal for me internally, right? Um, And I've been like, wow, like that's a long time to be writing about a small, I mean, I I write about a lot of different things throughout time, but there's 80% of regularity in what I do, right? Um, And I'm like, I've been writing about productivity for 10 years? Seriously? I haven't exhausted that yet. But every every time I'm like, nope, I haven't exhausted it. There's a new take, there's a new context, there's a new idea, there's a new problem, there's a new app, there's something new. And the trick is finding it, right? And and being a not not finding it, I'm not saying that it's hard to find it. It's approaching the conversation knowing that there's stuff that you don't know or that you haven't explored, or that there's some new ground there, and your job is to be open to finding it. And um, what I will say is, and Jeffrey, you've experienced this too with, you know, whether it's um, integrating, like, physical movement, i.e. yoga with creativity and things like that, there will become a time where you will absolutely hate that topic. Like, there are so, like, I go through cycles in which I hate, hate, hate being known for productivity. Like, with the with the fire... Of, you know, a thousand burning suns, I do not want to be associated with it, right? For all the sort of reasons. And then I'm like, okay, it's time to unload all the reasons I hate being known about this, right? Um, and adding it to the pile of posts and critiques that I have about this conversation, right? And then eventually I find myself like, no, 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 I don't hate this. Because for me, it's, it's something deeper, right? We become by doing, right? I'm very neo-Aristotelian in that way. And we don't become writers by thinking about writing. We don't come thought leaders or you know leaders in our spaces by thinking about becoming a leader. We actually have to do something. And the second you start talking about doing something, you start talking about, largely speaking, issues of productivity and getting stuff done and pushing your best work out and things like that. And so that's what I care about: the top level productivity stuff and 17 ways to hack a shoebox and things like that. I don't care about, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but same way with you, like I know there have been parts of what you do that you like. There are some times where. You know, you just don't want to talk about branding and positioning. Like I'm done. I just want to do, I just, I just want to hole up in a barn and write poetry. <laughs> right. which, uh, I, do. <laughs> which, which <laughs> I do. It's like, can that poet self have a place at the table? Absolutely. In
1: fact, the poet has to have, as, as a client reminded me last year, he was like, you know, you're being a poet is your secret medicine to copy and branding and so forth. So it was like, yes, that poet has to have room. And sometimes the poet just has to have room to be a poet without the brander, without the brand strategist. But, you know, when you find yourself fatigued with an idea or what you are associated with, this is to the listeners, is like, don't just burn the barn and say, I'm done with that. Like tap in and say, okay, where's, where's like the, again, like where is the fresh juice with my work or with my ideas? How can I turn my work into a stance? Like what are the core values underwriting it? For instance, branding and positioning could make me just like I could get so bored with that subject if I didn't give it my own spin that's meaningful to me. So, You know, I have to talk about branding with integrity and unpack all of the layers of what that means, like diving into your heritage and so forth for it to be meaningful to me so I don't get bored with a subject (laughs) like branding. But on the other hand, you're right. Like my I think it was James Hillman, uh, the depth psychologist who suggested, you know, our psyche is not, not just it's not just like one self. There, it's more like our psyche is a pantheon, <laughs> like a Greek pantheon. And so that's an interesting way to yeah. right understand your yourselves without being schizophrenic. It's to say that you have complex dimensions of being in the world, and right for me, that's in part being a poet. It's being a brand strategist. It's it's focusing on books and authors. Um, it's it's focused on all of that together, and I'm obsessed with tracking this elusive quality called wonder charlie gilkey i know plays a cool guitar i know he he is uh he's got uh, a wonderful background in philosophy as as we've heard uh pieces of and you have this uh strategic experience being in iraq that uh, i will never never fathom but you bring all of that to the table you and you're just a great human being to hang out with too. Uh, so, so you should be allowed, right? All of those different latitudes. And I'm saying you, Charlie, generally, for all of your audience, you know listeners, you you should have that uh, that permission, especially in our culture now, to be your complex self because your respective audiences want complexity now. They don't want a generic brand. That blends in. They don't want a generic business that blends in. They don't want a generic restaurant that blends in. They want you and your complexities, but tempered with some consistency.
0: (laughs) Yeah. The the ultimate challenge for for people listening, and this is the ultimate challenge for both Jeffrey and I, is I think people want two things. They want depth, and they want simplicity. Mm Mm-hmm. (laughs) Getting there is the challenge, right? Getting there is the challenge. And as you stand for more and more, and as you produce more and more, what you will realize is that your role shifts from being a creator to a curator. And you have to go back and like, you know, if you're frustrated because people aren't finding your work, and you always have to explain the same things over and over again, hate to say it, you just haven't done a good enough job curating your work yet, right? And maybe that's curating it into a book. Maybe that's, you know, changing some of the pages on your website. Maybe that's, you know, if you're other types of artist, you know, if you're a musician, maybe that's putting the best of album together, right? If you're a painter, it's, it's like repositioning your works so your best of is in a gallery space where it needs to be. But that is your job, right? It's not someone's job to walk into your conceptual gallery and know where everything is, right? And right. so, and the funny thing about it is I've, I've sort of put there's curation and there's creation, But when you meld them, they become one, right? Because you have to get creative about how you're going to curate your work. Um, But largely speaking, this fear of standing out, this fear of deciding, this fear of being about a few things, um, I think comes from wanting to be seen for the deep person that you are, for the rich person that you are. And just realize that your work will never capture the entirety of who you are. It just won't. No matter how many words you put on the page, no matter how much paint, songs you write, so on and so forth, none of that actually captures that. Because there are just yeah. parts of yourself that don't, that don't, that are not perceivable, right, in your work. Now, yes, I think it's a goal for all of us to express ourselves as much as possible in our work and really show up, because that's what makes your work stand out. Um, but there's always going to be that remainder. Um, and I think the remainder is beautiful because, and I'm just going to speak to the climate right now. It might be that your sort of political preferences are handled in things that are not covered with your business and your brand and things. And and you make a choice that that doesn't show up. And you're fine with that. You're part of boards. You're part of different community action clubs, whatever that is. That doesn't have to be part of your work. Maybe it is, though. You know, but you get that choice to to not have – I think about it this way because I've been working with a few clients on this. The biggest folly we can have with our business, our work, or our creative career is when it has to be the thing that feeds us in all ways possible. It has to be the place where we get our spiritual sustenance. It has to be the place where we get our social sustenance. It's the place where it has to get our mental, emotional, and physical. Like That is a huge task. That's like marrying someone and expecting them to be your sole source mm-hmm. of you know, comfort and need and, 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 and things like that. That's a huge responsibility to put on your work. But when you can say, you know what, no, my work is going to stand for certain things and I'm going to be the best in the world at it or I'm going to be however you define that. But it doesn't have to be everything. I think that's where you can actually lean into taking a stand. Um, Because you can be wrong. It can change. And you're still you and you can still have a bunch of other things going on.
1: Yeah, I love that piece about um, overburdening the brand with too high of expectations. And just as soon as you talked about Marriage. I was thinking the same thing. I thought, oh yes, you can do that in relationships as well. Expect too much of somebody. You can expect too much of someone in a working relationship. You certainly can expect too much of your brand or of your work. And I think it's a very timely topic. You know, when you look at um, the trends in our economy in the United States and and globally, as more and more people you know i think it's predicted by 2020 that 50% of the us workforce will be working for themselves or will have worked for themselves in one capacity or another 50% of the united states workforce and so what that has meant is more and more people have ventured out into entrepreneurship or becoming small business owners or figuring things out creatively um or they take a leap from a corporate job, what they haven't been trained in, what they haven't had experience in, if they've moved away from an organized structure to a new way of life and work where they're having to structure it, is um, self-efficacy and the ability to moderate one's own emotions and to moderate one's own expectations. And because new creative work of your own can send off like dopamine, like so crazy. Like you get just this pleasure zone so much, you get obsessed with your work and then yes, you expect it to be like this God or goddess in relationship and you invest everything in it and you're spent and, uh, uh, and then you wonder why it doesn't sustain you. So I think, you know, putting those sorts of constraints on your brand messaging is uh, it's ultimately more sustainable, and it, it you know it's what's going to draw people to you because you have narrowed narrowed what you are about and what you're not. Otherwise, we get too confused. Like if you go to uh, your favorite restaurant, probably I'm guessing, although I may be wrong with some listeners, uh, but your favorite restaurant, the one that you keep going back to and that you tell everyone about is probably not showing every facet of the restaurant owner's personality. Um, and it's probably not showing every possible food idea that the restaurant owner had. <laughs> it becomes known for this particular type, and it evolves, right? The restaurant, the food evolves as the chef learns new recipes, as the restaurant owner travels around the world, et cetera. So I hope that's a useful analogy for your uh, for your listeners.
0: Well, I think it's a great one because we all understand food. Um, and the other thing about it is imagine how frustrating of an experience it would be for most of your staple restaurants and places to always have different items on the menu. Like not that every time you go, like there is just a different menu and not because they've changed one or two or three items. All of the items are different, right? Every time That's- you go. Right Um, now we might have one novelty restaurant that we like to go to because we'd never know what we're going to get. But I know for me personally, there's a restaurant I go to quite frequently because I know before I leave the house, what I'm going to get right. Actually most of my restaurants are that way. I would be incredibly frustrated if every time I went to that restaurant, I had to decide all over again. Right. And I didn't know what was going to be there because I wouldn't go right. And and the reason I want to go there is because if your body of work is like that, where there is every time you show up, like it's a new menu, there's new food, you never know what you're going to get unless you're that novelty restaurant. And maybe Maria Popova is one of those novelty (laughs) restaurants, like you never really know what you're going to get and how it gets pulled together. And yet you know you're going to get intellectual depth brought together in this amazing hyperlink experience.
1: You may not know what the topic is, but you still know yeah. the delivery is going to be awesome.
0: Yeah, you still know that, but you just don't know what you're going to get except for that right. experience, right? She delivers experience, not content, and, and it's, she's done really well for herself. But most of us could stand to have this, you know, a consistency of what's on the menu, and to develop within those constraints, depth in the items on the menu, yeah. as opposed to experimenting with the menu all the time.
1: Exactly. That's a, that's a great iteration of the analogy. And to take it yet another step further, too, I was talking to a group last week about the, uh, the rise of independent uh, cafe, uh, cafes, coffee shops, and coffee bars now in the age of Starbucks. And I showed them a graph that just shows Starbucks' huge growth, right? Just like year after year, boom, 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 more and more uh, stores. Like I think in Union Square in the city, there are probably is, I think there's one on three of the four corners, just right there on that intersection. So so why this rise in coffee bars in the age of, of Starbucks? Well, because they give, they deliver a niche experience. They take a certain edge, like there's one I know of that has no Wi-Fi. Their whole purpose is to build live real space community. But here's the thing you know, my analogy with the coffee shop is you better have an amazing cup of coffee. Otherwise, all your branding and your content marketing thought leadership doesn't matter because nobody's going to talk about a lousy cup of coffee. Yeah. <laughs> nobody's going to talk about the no Wi Fi place if it's not worth it because their coffee's no good. So, so yes, go in depth with certain areas, but I love that. Yeah. Don't just change up the menu every few weeks, which is what I say, like, don't burn down the barn after a few months of trying, or just because somebody didn't respond to your blog article that you thought would change the world.
0: Yeah. Speaking of expectations, thinking that your blog post will change the world. um, (laughs) It's a very good, um, that's a very good route to not publishing anything.
1: Right. Uh, yeah, that's exactly. Or continuing to publish. Right.
0: Or yeah. I mean, because it's like that one didn't work, and that one didn't work, that one didn't work. But you never can see your hits coming. You just no. can't. Right. And so, but that's a topic for another day. It seems.
1: It uh, is. And I'll just say this, though. I just say this: um, um, <clears throat> when you write your content or publish your content by owning your message consistently, then you write for the difference you're going to make. A year from now, two years from now, you write in such a way that somebody's going to land on your website two years from now and they're going to go, oh my gosh, I have to talk to this person. That's what you write for. You don't write for the visible comments and applause and so forth that happens the day of publishing.
0: Absolutely. And I can say again, after I, I did an audit of, of you know, when, when we hit or when we were getting close to the 10 year mark, I did an audit and I was like, so let's take stock of the content there. And it's stuff that I that I wrote back in two thousand nine that people are still talking about that I'm still explaining that and and that's the thing that we don't remember is uh, and I think it's called Eternal September and I got it from um, Seth Godin um, is the idea that someone new landing on your body of work they weren't there in two thousand nine right they weren't there in two thousand and whenever right or nineteen ninety and whenever right um, and that's your opportunity. To even there stand for something, stand for that long term, and show up for the work that you produced. And when you do create that type of work, it pays dividends. And whatever's new and and exciting today, that won't stand the test of time. Well, sure, you hit published, um, but you had the opportunity to stand for something. That's right. That had value long term. That was going to transform someone long term. And even if you never see the ripples. Even if you never see it, doesn't doesn't mean it doesn't work. And I, I say that I was reminded last week that um someone in our audience, um, who used to work for PF actually, um, mentioned that one of her clients came in and she had said, like, have you ever heard of Charlie Gilkey's small business life cycle? Because they were talking about their avatar and things like that now. This was um this was dusty, she outed herself, so I'll herself too. So this is a dusty Arab. And so she was like, Yeah, I'm pretty sure she was one of the one of the midwives for that book, right? And so here I am four years after publishing that. And I'm like, "Eh, it's still out there. It's still selling. It's still doing its thing. And then just boop, like someone through, you know, a long time ago bought the book and, you know, has gotten feedback or has has gotten value from it. And that's what work that, um, you know, I'm proud of that book, but don't want to use myself necessarily as the model here. But work that you do that stands for something, when you stand out and say something that really speaks to people those are the ones that come back and have the shelf life of five years or 10 years. And they're definitely worth the investment and they're worth the conflict. Um, and they're worth the time in which you decide to create that as opposed to something else.
1: Yeah. 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 Um, so that, the book's great too. And I know you didn't have any fear in publishing it, but I'm so glad that you (laughs) got it out. Um, you know, it's, it's important for, for all of us to remember a, cup, a couple of things about our climate and our economy, again, globally. All of our fields and industries are shifting so quickly that you know it's probably wise that you're not saying, okay, well, I'm gonna stick with this one idea for the next five years. Of course not. But don't hold off because you can't predict the future. Don't hold off and say, well, I'm not going to run with this idea or this message because I don't know whether it's going to win or lose. There's n- there's really no way to predict any such idea for the future. Instead I would say give yourself a six month or a three month or six month experiment at the very least to really stand for a message that matters and to stand against certain related ideas within your field um, for at least six months to become better known for those uh, oppositional, those opposing ideas. Then you become influential in shifting the conversation. So I've been saying recently, well, if you don't like the conversation, change the conversation. If You don't like the way a certain conversation's going about your field or your topic or your area of work, then add your verse and change the direction of the conversation. You do that consistently, you'll see whether or not it pays Dividends, but that's the sort of near term, mid term thinking you have to show up for. We need it. We need, uh, I'll just say this I'll give my little, you know, public service announcement is that there are plenty of loud people in business, in marketing, in creativity, in health, and in spirituality, and in politics who are getting lots of attention because they're loud and persistent, and sometimes their messaging is counterproductive. And if you don't stand up for your message, it doesn't mean you have to tear those people down, but if you're not standing up for your message, then other people are only hearing those counterproductive messages. That's in part why I just, (laughs) I get pretty roused uh, to get other people to stand up for their messages that can really contribute value and contribute to the greater good.
0: I'll go one step further than Jeffrey on this one. Um, Your silence only perpetuates whatever conversation you don't like. So um, there's a bit of personal responsibility in there too, right? So you have the choice um, to not say anything. Um, and thereby perpetuate that conversation because jeffrey's absolutely right the loudest voices win um unless there are a lot of smaller by in volume but greater in depth people writing against it and again not necessarily that we're talking about political or economic things this is just whatever is in your field whatever is not working for people that you're being quiet about you're perpetuating that in a way um, and so, if you don't like it, change it at right. least try right um share your share your voice in this verse, and who knows? Maybe the chorus will change in time your silence,
1: yes, your silence perpetuates cynicism as well, right It perpetuates those ideas and it perpetuates other people's cynicism toward those ideas and cynicism is an easy path it's it's so easy especially in these times to be cynical in all different areas
0: Um,
1: so we need each other your influence is built as a thought leader conversation leader creative entrepreneur your influence is built verse by verse it's not built viral by viral
0: very nicely said Um being the guest on today's episode, you get to leave our listeners with an invitation or a challenge to do something, so you can mm-hmm. whichever resonates with you, whether it's an invitation or a challenge yeah you've shared a lot of things right, and I can imagine what your invitation slash challenge would be, but you have the horn here, Jeffrey. What would you invite or challenge our listeners to do within the next week yeah i
1: I uh, invite you to draw a chart for and against. And up at the top of that chart, write your message. Like write what that message is that you want to be known for 6 months from now. And on the left side under four, like just riff all of the different variations of that message and the values that you're for that relate to that message. In the against column, is write all of the counter messages and the values that you're against that relate to that core message. Own it. And I invite you, if not challenge you, to post something related to that, whether it's a video, blog, Facebook share, LinkedIn share, within the next seven days.
0: And a bunch of listeners are like, but where do I start? Figure out (laughs) something that really frustrates you or that lights your curiosity on fire? Either one is fine. right? Either one will get you there. Mind Uh, your
1: reputation or mind your curiosity.
0: Jeffrey, thanks so much for joining me today. I look forward to our next conversation as well. And um, again, always a blast to talk to you. Yeah, it's great talking with you too, Charlie. Thanks so much. All righty, listener. So you heard it from Jeffrey. Make a map of what you want to stand, up, stand for. You know, what are the oppositional pieces for that, right? What irritates you about that? What frustrates you about that? What are those things that you just wish would go away? It's one column. And on that column, what is it that ignites and, and illuminates and really inspires the wonder and curiosity within you? So you've got a week. Pick whatever idea most frustrates you or most excites you and do the exercise that um, Jeffrey mentioned. And until next time, stand tall. Thanks for listening to Productive Flourishing. To get more resources that will help you finish the work that matters and be your best self in the world, head on over to productiveflourishing.com. If this episode warmed your heart or got your wheels turning, we'd really appreciate it if you'd leave a review for the podcast on iTunes.